0: Section 2 of The History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Rome, Volume 1, by Libby. Translated by William Mosfin Roberts. Book 1, Chapters 4 to 16. Chapter 4. Birth and Uprearing. But the fates had, I believe, already decreed the origin of this great city and the foundation of the mightiest empire under heaven. The Vestal was forcibly violated and gave birth to twins. She named Mars as their father, either because she really believed it or because the fault might appear less heinous if a deity were the cause of it. But neither gods nor men sheltered her or her babes from the king's cruelty. The priestess was thrown into prison, the boys were ordered to be thrown into the river. By a heaven-sent chance, it happened that the Tiber was then overflowing its banks, and stretches of standing water prevented any approach to the main channel. Those who were carrying the children expected that this stagnant water would be sufficient to drown them, so under the impression that they were carrying out the king's orders, they exposed the boys at the nearest point of the overflow, where the ficus said to have been formerly called Romularis, now stands. The locality was then a wild solitude. The tradition goes on to say that after the floating cradle in which the boys had been exposed had been left by their retreating water on dry land, a thirsty she wolf from the surrounding hills attracted by the crying of the children came to them, gave them her teats to suck, and was so gentle towards them that the king's flockmaster found her licking the boys with her tongue. According to the story, his name was Faustulus. He took the children to his hut, and gave them to his wife Laurentia to bring up. Some writers think that Laurentia, from her unchaste life, had got the nickname of she wolf amongst the shepherds, and that this was the origin of the marvellous story. As soon as the boys, thus born and thus brought up, grew to be young men, they did not neglect their pastoral duties, but their special delight was roaming through the woods on hunting expeditions. As their strength and courage were thus developed, they used not only to lie in wait for fierce beasts of prey, but they even attacked brigands when loaded with plunder. They distributed what they took amongst the shepherds, with whom, surrounded by a continually increasing body of young men, they associated themselves in their serious undertakings and in their sports and pastimes. Chapter 5. Romulus Recognized, Amulius Killed It is said that the festival of the Lupercalia, which is still observed, was even in those days celebrated on the Palatine Hill. This hill was originally called Palantium, from a city of the same name in Arcadia. The name was afterwards changed to Palatium. Evander, an Arcadian, had held that territory many ages before, and had introduced an annual festival from Arcadia, in which young men ran about naked for sport and wantonness, in honor of the Lycian Pan whom the Romans afterwards called Ennis. The existence of this festival was widely recognized, and it was while the two brothers were engaged in it that the brigands, enraged at losing their plunder, ambushed them. Romulus successfully defended himself, but Remus was taken prisoner and brought before Amulius, his captors impudently accusing him of their own crimes. The principal charge brought against them was that of invading Numitor's lands with a body of young men, whom they had got together, and carrying off plunder as though in regular warfare. Remus, accordingly, was handed over to Numitor for punishment. Faustulus had, from the beginning, suspected that it was royal offspring that he was bringing up, for he was aware that the boys had been exposed at the king's command, and the time at which he had taken them away exactly corresponded with that of their exposure. He had, however, refused to divulge the matter prematurely, until either a fitting opportunity occurred or necessity demanded its disclosure. The necessity came first. Alarmed for the safety of Remus, he revealed the state of the case to Romulus. It so happened that Numitor also, who had Remus in his custody, on hearing that he and his brother were twins, and comparing their ages and the character and bearing so unlike that of one in a servile condition, began to recall the memory of his grandchildren, and further inquiries brought him to the same conclusion as Faustulus. Nothing was wanting to the recognition of Remus. So the king, Amulius was being enmeshed on all sides by hostile purposes. Romulus shrunk from a direct attack with his body of shepherds, for he was no match for the king in an open fight. They were instructed to approach the palace by different routes and meet there at a given time, Whilst from Numitor's house, Remus lent his assistance with a second band he had collected. The attack succeeded, and the king was killed. Chapter 6 At the beginning of the fray, Numitor gave out that an enemy had entered the city and was attacking the palace, in order to draw off the Alban soldiery to the citadel to defend it. When he saw the young men coming to congratulate him after the assassination, he at once called a council of his people and explained his brother's infamous conduct towards him the story of his grandsons, their parentage and bringing up, and how he recognized them. Then he proceeded to inform them of the tyrant's death and his responsibility for it. The young men marched in order through the midst of the assembly and saluted their grandfather as king. Their action was approved by the whole population, who with one voice ratified the title and sovereignty of the king. The Foundation of Rome After the government of Alba was thus transferred to Numitor, Romulus and Remus were seized with the desire of building a city in the locality where they had been exposed. There was the superfluous population of the Alban and Latin towns, to these were added the shepherds. It was natural to hope that with all these Alba would be small and Lavinium small in comparison with the city which was to be founded. These pleasant anticipations were disturbed by the ancestral curse. Ambition which led to a deplorable quarrel over what was at first a trivial matter. As they were twins and no claim to precedence could be based on seniority, they decided to consult the tutelary deities of the place by means of augury as to who was to give his name to the new city, and who was to rule it after it had been founded. Romulus accordingly selected the palatine as his station for observation, Remus the Aventine. Chapter 7 Death of Rebus Remus is said to have been the first to receive an omen. Six vultures appeared to him. The augury had just been announced to Romulus when double the number appeared to him. Each was saluted as king by his own party. The one side based their claim on the priority of the appearance, the other on the number of the birds. Then followed an angry altercation. Heated passions led to bloodshed. In the tumult, Remus was killed. The more common report is that Remus contemptuously jumped over the newly raised walls and was forthwith killed by the enraged Romulus, who exclaimed, So shall it be, henceforth with everyone who leaps over my walls! Romulus thus became sole ruler, and the city was called after him, its founder. The Legend of Hercules and Cacus His first work was to fortify the Palatine Hill, where he had been brought up. The worship of the other deities he conducted according to the use of Alba, but that of Hercules, in accordance with the Greek rites, as they had been instituted by Evander. It was into this neighborhood, according to the tradition, that Hercules, after he had killed Geryon, drove his oxen, which were of marvelous beauty. He swam across the Tiber, driving the oxen before him, and wearied with his journey, lay down in a grassy place near the river, to rest himself and the oxen, who enjoyed the rich pasture. When sleep had overtaken him as he was heavy with food and wine a shepherd living near called Cacus, presuming on his strength and captivated by the beauty of the oxen determined to secure them if he drove them before him into the cave their hoof marks would have led their owner on his search for them in the same direction so he dragged the finest of them backwards by their tails into the cave at the first streak of dawn hercules awoke and on surveying his herd saw that some were missing. He proceeded towards the nearest cave to see if any tracks pointed in that direction, but he found that every hoofmark led from the cave and none towards it. Perplexed and bewildered, he began to drive the herd away from so dangerous a neighborhood. Some of the cattle, missing those which were left behind, lowed as they often do, and an answering low sounded from the cave. Hercules turned in that direction, and as Cacchus tried to prevent him by force from entering the cave, he was killed by a blow from Hercules' club, after vainly appealing for help to his comrades. The king of the country at that time was Evander, a refugee from Peloponnesus, who ruled more by personal ascendancy than by the exercise of power. He was looked up to with reverence for his knowledge of letters, a new and marvelous thing for uncivilized men, But he was still more revered because of his mother Carmenta, who was believed to be a divine being and regarded with wonder by all as an interpreter of fate, in the days before the arrival of the sibyl in Italy. This Evander, alarmed by the crowd of excited shepherds standing round a stranger whom they accused of open murder, ascertained from them the nature of his act and what led to it. As he observed the bearing and stature of the man to be more than human in greatness and august dignity, he asked who he was. When he heard his name and learnt his father and his country, he said, Hercules, son of Jupiter, hail! My mother, who speaks truth in the name of the gods, has prophesied that thou shalt join the company of the gods, and that here a shrine shall be dedicated to thee, which in ages to come the most powerful nation in all the world shall call their Ara Maxima, and honor with thine own special worship. Hercules grasped Evander's right hand and said that he took the omen to himself and would fulfill the prophecy by building and consecrating the altar. Then a heifer of conspicuous beauty was taken from the herd, and the first sacrifice was offered. The potatii and Pinari, the two principal families in those parts, were invited by Hercules to assist in the sacrifice and at the feast which followed. It so happened that the potiti were present at the appointed time, and the entrails were placed before them. The pinari arrived after these were consumed, and came in for the rest of the banquet. It became a permanent institution from that time that as long as the family of the pinari survived, they should not eat of the entrails of the victims. The potiti, after being instructed by Evander, presided over that rite for many ages, until they handed over this ministerial office to public servants after which the whole race of the Potiti perished. This, out of all foreign rights, was the only one which Romulus adopted, as though he felt that an immortality won through courage, of which this was the memorial, would one day be his own reward. Chapter 8. The Political Constitution After the claims of religion had been duly acknowledged, Romulus called his people to a council. As nothing could unite them into one political body but the observance of common laws and customs, he gave them a body of laws which he thought would only be respected by a rude and uncivilized race of men if he inspired them with awe by assuming the outward symbols of power. He surrounded himself with greater state, and in particular he called into his service twelve lictors. Some think that he fixed upon this number from the number of the birds who foretold his sovereignty but I am inclined to agree with those who think that as this class of public officers was borrowed from the same people from whom the Sella curulis and the Toga Praetexta were adopted, their neighbors, the Etruscans, so the number itself also was taken from them. Its use amongst the Etruscans is traced to the custom of the twelve sovereign cities of Etruria, when jointly electing a king, furnishing him each with one lictor. The Asylum Meantime, the city was growing by the extension of its walls in various directions, an increase due rather to the anticipation of its future population than to any present overcrowding. His next care was to secure an addition to the population that the size of the city might not be a source of weakness. It had been the ancient policy of the founders of cities to get together a multitude of people of obscure and low origin, and then to spread the fiction that they were the children of the soil. In accordance with this policy, Romulus opened a place of refuge on the spot where, as you go down from the capital, you find an enclosed space between two groves. A promiscuous crowd of freemen and slaves, eager for change, fled thither from the neighboring states. This was the first accession of strength to the nascent greatness of the city. The Senate. When he was satisfied as to its strength, his next step was to provide for that strength being wisely directed. He created a hundred senators, either because that number was adequate or because there were only a hundred heads of houses who could be created. In any case, they were called the Patres in virtue of their rank, and their descendants were called Patricians. Chapter 9. The Rape of the Sabines The Roman state had now become so strong that it was a match for any of its neighbors in war, but its greatness threatened to last for only one generation— since through the absence of women there was no hope of offspring, and there was no right of intermarriage with their neighbors. Acting on the advice of the Senate, Romulus sent envoys amongst their surrounding nations to ask for alliance and the right of intermarriage on behalf of his new community. It was represented that cities, like everything else, sprung from the humblest beginnings, and those who were helped on by their own courage, in the favor of heaven, won for themselves great power and great renown. As to the origin of Rome, it was well known that whilst it had received divine assistance, courage and self-reliance were not wanting. There should, therefore, be no reluctance for men to mingle their blood with their fellow men. Nowhere did the envoys meet with a favorable reception. Whilst their proposals were treated with contumely, There was, at the same time, a general feeling of alarm at the power so rapidly growing in their midst. Usually, they were dismissed with the question whether they had opened an asylum for women, for nothing short of that would secure for them intermarriage on equal terms. The Roman youth could ill-brook such insults, and matters began to look like an appeal to force. To secure a favorable place and time for such an attempt, Romulus, disguising his resentment, made elaborate preparations for the celebration of games in honor of Equestrian Neptune, which he called the Consualia. He ordered public notice of the spectacle to be given amongst the adjoining cities, and his people supported him in making the celebration as magnificent as their knowledge and resources allowed, so that expectations were raised to the highest pitch. There was a great gathering, people were eager to see the new city, all their nearest neighbors, the people of Cana, Antemne, and Crestumarium were there, and the whole saving population came with their wives and families. They were invited to accept hospitality at the different houses, and after examining the situation of the city, its walls, and the large number of dwelling houses it included, they were astonished at the rapidity with which the Roman state had grown. When the hour for the games had come, and their eyes and minds were alike riveted on the spectacle before them, the preconcerted signal was given, and the Roman youth dashed in all directions to carry off the maidens who were present. The larger part were carried off indiscriminately, but some particularly beautiful girls who had been marked out for the leading patricians were carried to their houses by plebeians told off for the task. One conspicuous amongst them all for grace and beauty, is reported to have been carried off by a group led by a certain Telasius, and to the many inquiries as to whom she was intended for, the invariable answer was given, for Telassius. Hence the use of this word in the marriage rites. Alarm and consternation broke up the games, and the parents of the maidens fled, distracted with grief, uttering bitter reproaches on the violators of the laws of hospitality, and appealing to the god to whose solemn games they had come, only to be the victims of impious perfidy. The abducted maidens were quite as despondent and indignant. Romulus, however, went round in person and pointed out to them that it was all owing to the pride of their parents in denying right of intermarriage to their neighbors. They would live in honorable wedlock and share all their property and civil rights, and, dearest of all to human nature, would be the mothers of free men. He begged them to lay aside their feelings of resentment and give their affections to those whom fortune had made masters of their persons. An injury had often led to reconciliation and love. They would find their husbands all the more affectionate, because each would do his utmost, so far as in him lay, to make up for the loss of parents and country. These arguments were reinforced by the endearments of their husbands, who excused their conduct by pleading the irresistible force of their passion a plea effective beyond all others in appealing to a woman's nature. Chapter 10, First Wars The feelings of the abducted maidens were now pretty completely appeased, but not so those of their parents. They went about in mourning garb and tried by their tearful complaints to rouse their countrymen to action. Nor did they confine their remonstrances to their own cities. They flocked from all sides to Titus Tatius, the king of the Sabines, and sent formal deputations to him, for his was the most influential name in those parts. The people of Canana, Christumerium, and Temne were the greatest sufferers. They thought Tatius and his Sabines were too slow in moving, so these three cities prepared to make war conjointly. Such, however, were the impatience and anger of the Cananencians that even the Crustuminians and Antemnates did not display enough energy for them. So the men of Canaan made an attack upon Roman territory on their own account. Whilst they were scattered far and wide, pillaging and destroying, Romulus came upon them with an army, and after a brief encounter, taught them that anger is futile without strength. He put them to a hasty flight, and following them up, killed their king and despoiled his body. Then, after slaying their leader, took their city at the first assault. He was no less anxious to display his achievements than he had been great in performing them. So... After leading his victorious army home, he mounted to the capital with the spoils of his dead foe borne before him on a frame constructed for the purpose. He hung them there on an oak which the shepherds looked upon as a sacred tree, and at the same time marked out the site for the temple of Jupiter, and addressing the god by a new title uttered the following invocation. Jupiter, Feretrius, these arms taken from a king, I, Romulus, a king and conqueror, bring to thee... And on this domain, whose bounds I have in will and purpose traced, I dedicate a temple to receive the spolia opima, which posterity, following my example, shall bear hither, taken from the kings and generals of our foes, slain in battle. Such was the origin of the first temple dedicated in Rome. And the gods decreed that though its founder did not utter idle words in declaring that posterity would thither bear their spoils, Still, the splendor of that offering should not be dimmed by the number of those who have rivaled his achievement. For after so many years have elapsed, and so many wars been waged, only twice have the spolia opima been offered. So seldom has fortune granted that glory to men. Chapter 11 Whilst the Romans were thus occupied, the army of the Antemnates seized the opportunity of their territory being unoccupied, and made a raid into it. Romulus hastily led his legion against this fresh foe and surprised them as they were scattered over the fields. At the very first battle shout and charge, the enemy were routed and their city captured. Whilst Romulus was exulting over this double victory, his wife, Hercilia, moved by the entreaties of the abducted maidens, implored him to pardon their parents and receive them into citizenship, for so the state would increase in unity and strength. He readily granted her request. He then advanced against the Crestominians, who had commenced war, but their eagerness had been damped by the successive defeats of their neighbors, and they offered but slight resistance. Colonies were planted in both places, owing to the fertility of the soil of the Crestamine district. The majority gave their names for that colony. On the other hand, there were numerous migrations to Rome, mostly of the parents and relatives of the abducted maidens. War with the Sabines The last of these wars was commenced by the Sabines and proved the most serious of all, for nothing was done in passion or impatience. They masked their designs till war had actually commenced. Strategy was aided by craft and deceit, as the following incident shows. Spurius Tarpeius was in command of the Roman citadel. Whilst his daughter had gone outside the fortifications to fetch water for some religious ceremonies, Tatius bribed her to admit his troops within the citadel. Once admitted, they crushed her to death beneath their shields, either that the citadel might appear to have been taken by assault, or that her example might be left as a warning that no faith should be kept with traitors. A further story runs that the Sabines were in the habit of wearing heavy gold armlets on their left arms, and richly jeweled rings, and that the girl made them promise to give her what they had on their left arms. Accordingly, they piled their shields upon her instead of golden gifts. Some say that in bargaining for what they had in their left hands, she expressly asked for their shields, and being suspected of wishing to betray them, fell a victim to her own bargain. Chapter 12. However this may be, the Sabines were in possession of the citadel, and they would not come down from it the next day, though the Roman army was drawn up in battle array over the whole of the ground between the Palatine and the Capitoline hill. Until, exasperated at the loss of their citadel and determined to recover it, the Romans mounted to the attack. Advancing before the rest, Medius Curtius on the side of the Sabines and Hostius Hostilius on the side of the Romans engaged in single combat. Hostius, fighting on disadvantageous ground, upheld the fortunes of Rome by his intrepid bravery, but at last he fell. The Roman line broke and fled to what was then the Gate of the Palatine. Even Romulus was being swept away by the crowd of fugitives, and lifting up his hands to heaven, he exclaimed, Jupiter, it was thy omen that I obeyed when I laid here on the Palatine, the earliest foundations of the city. Now the Sabines hold its citadel, having bought it by a bribe, and coming thence have seized the valley, and are pressing hitherwards in battle. Do thou, Father of gods and men, drive hence our foes, banish terror from Roman hearts, and stay our shameful flight. Here do I vow a temple to thee, Jove the Stayer, as a memorial for the generations to come, that it is through thy present help that the city has been saved. Then, as though he had become aware that his prayer had been heard, he cried, Back, Romans! Jupiter, Optimus, Maximus, bid you stand and renew the battle. They stopped, as though commanded by a voice from heaven. Romulus dashed up to the foremost line, just as Medius Curtius had run down from the citadel in front of the Sabines and driven the Romans in headlong flight over the whole of the ground now occupied by the Forum. He was now not far from the gate of the Palatine, and was shouting, We have not conquered our faithless hosts, our cowardly foes. Now they know that to carry off maidens is a very different thing from fighting with men. In the midst of these vaunts, Romulus, with a compact body of valiant troops, charged down on him. Medius happened to be on horseback, so he was the more easily driven back. The Romans followed in pursuit, and inspired by the courage of their king, the rest of the Roman army routed the Sabines. Metius, unable to control his horse, maddened by the noise of his pursuers, plunged into a morass. The danger of their general drew off the attention of the Sabines for a moment from the battle, They called out and made signals to encourage him, so, animated to fresh efforts, he succeeded in extricating himself. Thereupon the Romans and Sabines renewed the fighting in the middle of the valley, but the fortune of Rome was in the ascendant. Chapter 13. Peace and Union with the Sabines Then it was that the Sabine woman, whose wrongs had led to the war, throwing off all womanish fears in their distress, went boldly into the midst of the flying missiles with disheveled hair and rent garments. Running across the space between the two armies, they tried to stop any further fighting and calm the excited passions by appealing to their fathers in the one army and their husbands in the other not to bring upon themselves a curse by staining their hands with the blood of a father-in-law or a son-in-law, nor upon their posterity the taint of parricide. If, they cried, you are weary of these ties of kindred, these marriage bonds, then turn your anger upon us. It is we who are the cause of the war. It is we who have wounded and slain our husbands and fathers. Better for us to perish rather than live without one or the other of you, as widows or as orphans. The armies and their leaders were alike moved by this appeal. There was a sudden hush and silence. Then the generals advanced to arrange the terms of a treaty. It was not only peace that was made. The two nations were united into one state. The royal power was shared between them, and the seat of government for both nations was Rome. After thus doubling the city, a concession was made to the Sabines in the new appellation of Quirites from their old capital of Cures. As a memorial of the battle, the place where Curtius got his horse out of the deep marsh onto safer ground was called the Curtian Lake, the Curies and the Centuries. The joyful peace, which put an abrupt close to such a deplorable war, made the Sabine women still dearer to their husbands and fathers, and most of all to Romulus himself. Consequently, when he effected the distribution of the people into the thirty curiae, he affixed their names to the curiae. No doubt there were many more than thirty women, and tradition is silent as to whether those whose names were given to the curiae were selected on the ground of age, or on that of personal distinction, either their own or their husbands, or merely by lot. The enrollment of the three centuries of knights took place at the same time. The Remnenses were called after Romulus, the Titiances from Titus Tatius. The origin of the Luceres and why they were so called is uncertain. Thenceforward, the two kings exercised their joint sovereignty with perfect harmony. Chapter 14 Death of Titus Tatius. Some years subsequently, the kinsmen of King Tatius ill treated the ambassadors of the Laurentines. They came to seek redress from him in accordance with international law, but the influence and importunities of his friends had more weight with Taddius than the remonstrances of the Laurentines. The consequence was that he brought upon himself the punishment due to them, for when he had gone to the annual sacrifice at Lavinium, a tumult arose in which he was killed. Romulus is reported to have been less distressed at this incident than his position demanded, either because of the insincerity inherent in all joint sovereignty, or because he thought he had deserved his fate. He refused, therefore, to go to war, but that the wrong done to the ambassadors and the murder of the king might be expiated, the treaty between Rome and Lavinium was renewed. War with Fidene Whilst in this direction an unhoped-for peace was secured, war broke out in a much nearer quarter, in fact almost at the very gates of Rome. The people of Phaidanae considered that a power was growing up too close to them, so to prevent the anticipations of its future greatness from being realized, they took the initiative in making war. Armed bands invaded and devastated the country lying between the city and Phaidanae. Thence they turned to the left. The Tiber barred their advance on the right and plundered and destroyed to the great alarm of the country people. A sudden rush from the fields into the city was the first intimation of what was happening. A war so close to their gates admitted of no delay, and Romulus hurriedly led out his army and encamped about a mile from Vidanae. Leaving a small detachment to guard the camp, he went forward with his whole force, and whilst one part were ordered to lie in ambush in a place overgrown with dense brushwood, he advanced with the larger part and the whole of the cavalry towards the city and by riding up to the very gates in a disorderly and provocative manner, he succeeded in drawing the enemy. The cavalry continued these tactics, and so made the flight which they were to feign seem less suspicious. And when their apparent hesitation, whether to fight or to flee, was followed by the retirement of the infantry, the enemy suddenly poured out of the crowded gates, broke the Roman line, and pressed on in eager pursuit till they were brought to where the ambush was set. Then the Romans suddenly rose and attacked the enemy in flank. Their panic was increased by the troops in the camp bearing down upon them. Terrified by the threatened attacks from all sides, the Phaedonates turned and fled almost before Romulus and his men could wheel round from their simulated flight. They made for their town much more quickly than they had just before pursued those who pretended to flee, for their flight was a genuine one. They could not, however, shake off the pursuit. The Romans were on their heels, and before the gates could be closed against them, burst through pell-mell with the enemy. Chapter 15. War with Veii. The contagion of the war spirit in Fidenae infected the Veientes. This people were connected by ties of blood with the Phaedonates, who were also Etruscans, and an additional incentive was supplied by the mere proximity of the place, should the arms of Rome be turned against all her neighbors. They made an incursion into Roman territory, rather for the sake of plunder than as an act of regular war. After securing their booty, they returned with it to Vey without entrenching a camp or waiting for the enemy. The Romans, on the other hand, not finding the enemy on their soil, crossed the Tiber, prepared and determined to fight a decisive battle. On hearing that they had formed an entrenched camp and were preparing to advance on their city, The Veientes went out against them, preferring a combat in the open to being shut up and having to fight from houses and walls. Romulus gained the victory, not through stratagem, but through the prowess of his veteran army. He drove the routed enemy up to their walls, but in view of the strong position and fortifications of the city, he abstained from assaulting it. On his march homewards, he devastated their fields, more out of revenge than for the sake of plunder. The loss thus sustained, no less than the previous defeat, broke the spirit of the Veantes, and they sent envoys to Rome to sue for peace. On condition of a cession of territory, a truce was granted to them for a hundred years. These were the principal events at home and in the field that marked the reign of Romulus. Throughout, whether we consider the courage he showed in recovering his ancestral throne, or the wisdom he displayed in founding the city and adding to its strength through war and peace alike, we find nothing incompatible with the belief in his divine origin and his admission to divine immortality after death. It was, in fact, through the strength given by him that the city was powerful enough to enjoy an assured peace for 40 years after his departure. He was, however, more acceptable to the populace than to the patricians, but most of all was he the idol of his soldiers. He kept a bodyguard of three hundred men round him, in peace as well as in war. These he called the Salaires. Chapter 16 Disappearance of Romulus After these immortal achievements, Romulus held a review of his army at the Caprae Palace in the campus Martius a violent thunderstorm suddenly arose and enveloped the king in so dense a cloud that he was quite invisible to the assembly. From that hour, Romulus was no longer seen on earth. When the fears of the Roman youth were allayed by the return of bright, calm sunshine after such fearful weather, they saw that the royal seat was vacant. Whilst they fully believed the assertion of the senators, who had been standing close to him, that he had been snatched away to heaven by a whirlwind, Still, like men suddenly bereaved, fear and grief kept them for some time speechless. At length, after a few had taken the initiative, the whole of those present hailed Romulus as a god, the son of a god, the king and father of the city of Rome. They put up supplications for his grace and favor, and prayed that he would be propitious to his children and save and protect them. I believe, however, that even then there were some who secretly hinted that he had been torn limb from limb by the Senators. A tradition to this effect, though certainly a very dim one, has filtered down to us. The other, which I follow, has been the prevailing one due, no doubt, to the admiration felt for the man and the apprehensions excited by his disappearance. This generally accepted belief was strengthened by one man's clever device. Their tradition runs that Proculus Julius, a man whose authority had weight in matters of even the gravest importance, seeing how deeply the community felt the loss of the king and how incensed they were against the senators, came forward into the assembly and said, "Quirites, at break of dawn today the father of this city suddenly descended from heaven and appeared to me. Whilst thrilled with awe, I stood rapt before him in deepest reverence, praying that I might be pardoned for gazing upon him. Go, said he, tell the Romans that it is the will of heaven that my Rome should be the head of all the world. Let them thenceforth cultivate the arts of war, and let them know assuredly, and hand down the knowledge to posterity, that no human might can withstand the arms of Rome. It is marvelous what credit was given to this man's story, and how the grief of the people and the army was soothed by the belief which had been created in the immortality of Romulus. End of section 2